welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. All right, it's good to see everybody. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of Jude this morning. Jude chapter 1, there is nothing else. If you don't know where Jude is, it is the second to the last book of your Bible. So you can go to Revelation, turn left, and you'll end up at Jude. Well, many of you probably know this, but in Arkansas, if you want to hunt, and you were born after, I believe it's 1980, you have to take a course called Hunter's Education. You must do this before you can hunt by yourself or before you can buy a hunter's license in Arkansas. Now this Hunter's Ed course today, I think you get online and you take it online, but back when I took it, you went to the college and you sat in a room with two game wardens for eight hours while they taught you general things about hunter safety, like how to handle a gun properly or, or what kind of deer is legal to shoot and what kind you can't shoot. I still remember sitting there with two game wardens and them telling me how to cross a barbed wire fence with a gun without shooting myself accidentally, which I greatly appreciated. It's come very useful over the years. And what happens is after you take this course, you take a quiz, and then they send you, about four weeks later, they send you a little orange card in the mail that says, congratulations, you're approved to hunt in Arkansas by a hunter's license. At 13 or 14, I took this class, and I came home from school one day, and my little orange card was in the mail, and I thought I was a grown man. Like, I can now hunt by myself. I've got a license that says, Grandpa doesn't have to sit in the tree stand with me, nobody has to go with me, and I proudly told my family, I'm going squirrel hunting, because there's only thing in season. So I put my card in my wallet and put it in my back pocket and got on the full wheeler and took a 22 and took off. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but maybe I do it wrong. When I squirrel hunt, I spend a lot of time walking around looking up in the trees. And I was on one particular part of our farm where I was looking up in the trees, and I have no clue what caused me to look down. But as I looked down, there was a rattlesnake right in front of me. Now, let me, let me just be clear here because I see that that didn't land with some of y'all. I hate snakes, okay? And if you don't hate snakes, something is wrong with you. It's literally in the Bible. It made it into chapter 3 of the entire Bible. Snakes are bad, okay? Some of you are like, ooh, spiders. Find it in the Bible, and then we'll argue about which one's more dangerous. And when I say there was a snake right in front of me, I don't mean, oh, there's a snake up there. I mean, if I had taken another step, I would have stepped either on or it was so close, I might have stepped over it. I mean, it was just right there. And I remember this day vividly. I remember shaking, and they had sent a walkie-talkie with me, because although I was a grown man, in case there was an emergency, I needed to call my family. So I'm like, there's a snake on the ground, and I was freaking out about the snake. Now, the reason I bring that story up is that, that snakes are dangerous to people, and here's why. That rattlesnake had a perfect camouflage. It, it didn't like stand out. It wasn't like red or blue. It didn't come with a flashing line. It was camouflaged into the leaves below me. And for that reason, it didn't stand out to me. And I, I could have very easily stepped on it. I could have very easily gotten bit that morning. So if you're not watching, a snake will, hiding in plain sight, can possibly bite you, inject you, and in my opinion, kill you. You could argue with that if you wanted to. Now, I bring that up because we're starting this book of Jude, and the content is basically a warning to us. Be careful about snakes. 
Not snakes in the church, not like physical snakes, but snakes as an analogy for people. There are snakes among us. And the, the content of this book is that there is an exists or a danger of people that are within our churches hiding in plain sight. And if you're not watching, they may inject the church with something that will kill it. So read with me. We're going to be in this book for three weeks. We're going to do the whole book. It's, it's actually just one chapter, just a very, very short little book. We're going to go through it verse by verse. So read with me chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified, it's called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Keep your Bible open. We're going to come back to that. Now, Jude, like many books in the Old Testament, is what we call an epistle. Epistle is simply a letter that was written from one person to give Christian instruction to either a church, another person, or a group of people. So this epistle is a letter, and just like we write letters with a with a beginning and an ending, so did they. When I when I write a letter, it's like to Jessica, you're beautiful and wonderful, and I love you in every way. Love Brian. Oh, she's not in here. Dad gummit, I was getting my brownie points. Some of you guys tattle on me every time I tell a story on Jessica, and I know because she comes home and says, I heard you talked about me this morning. So you go tell her I said wonderful things about her this morning, okay? When you leave here, make sure she knows. But that, that's how we write letters, to and from. Well, in this style of writing, in these old epistles, they always start at the beginning of the epistle with a to and a from that tells you who is writing and who they are writing to. So let's look at what the Bible tells us. It tells us who the letter is from, which is Jude. Now, Jude, by the way that he introduces himself, was obviously known to other people. Um, Jude is a derivative of the name Judas, which obviously became not very popular after Judas Iscariot. But it's a derivative of that, kind of like we might call Thomas Tom or William Billy. And there's only six Judes or Judases in the brother, or in, in the Bible rather. Uh, Jude here tells us one thing about himself to identify himself, of which Jude he might be. And he says, I am the brother of James. Now that tells us a lot about who Jude is because there's only one place in the Bible where there are brothers of Jude and James mentioned, and that is in Matthew chapter 15. And those names are mentioned as brothers, physical brothers of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about Jude here, we're talking about a half-brother of Jesus. Now, let me start off here. If I was introducing myself in a letter and I was the physical brother of Jesus Christ, that's how I would start off with Brian, brother of Jesus Christ. And then I would tell you a funny story about how me and Jesus played football when we were young. But I want you to notice this about Jude. Though he is the physical brother of Jesus Christ, he doesn't mention that in the letter. He calls himself the brother of James and the bondservant of Jesus Christ. There's a couple reasons for that. Some scholars believe that there was like this cult of family worship at this time. But, but I think it's deeper. I think Jude is approaching this letter with a deep understanding of who Jesus Christ was. Jude comes here and says, Jesus Christ Christ is not just the boy that I grew up with. He's not just my older brother. He's not just the one I could tell you stories about from family reunions. I realize now that Jesus, my brother, is God. And when Jude gives us his identity, he doesn't give us his identity as someone related to Jesus in the physical earthly realm. He gives us his identity as somebody related to Jesus in the spiritual realm. He gives himself the name of a bondservant. That's a, a laborer without wages. We would call that a slave in modern society. He, he introduces himself. I'm Jude. Who are you? Well, I have a brother named James and I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I'm a slave to him. I serve him completely, which brings us to our first take home truth on your notes is that Jesus is the master and we serve him. 
Now, we have to be careful because honestly, in American Christianity, honestly, in our world, sometimes we get that reversed. Like, Jesus is something that I add to my life to enhance my life. I saw a shirt one time that all I need today is a little bit of Jesus and some caffeine or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But Jesus is not something that we add to our life and it improves our life. Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. We serve Him. He is so much higher than us. We could never think of Him serving us. That, that is why the gospel is so crazy because He did. He chose to serve us. But you see here that Jude has it right in the way that he talks about it. I don't serve, or Jesus doesn't serve me. I am a servant of Him. So it's from Jude, and he's writing this to believers in Jesus Christ. This is the equivalent of an open letter at that time. Most of the epistles start off with like Paul writing to a church. That's what Corinthians is. He was writing to the church at Corinth. But Jude, as he continues or begins his letter, he doesn't say, I'm writing to a specific individual. He says, I'm writing this to all believers. Basically what he's saying is, if you follow Christ, you need to listen to what I have to say. It doesn't matter if you're in the American church 2,000 years from now. It doesn't matter if you're in Asia. It doesn't matter if you're here in Israel and Jerusalem. This is for all believers. And he defines believers with three aspects. He says that believers are called, they are sanctified by God, and they are preserved, preserved by Jesus. This is how he defines believers in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something. Deep theology in the beginning of this letter. Everything that Jude associates with being a believer in Jesus Christ is not a work of the people that are believers. It is a work of God in the believers. Called, um, called, sanctified, and preserved. Uh, think about it this way. When he, when he says this, that you were called, when somebody calls you, they are taking the initiative. If my phone was to ring right now, it means that somebody picked up their phone and decided to call me. They're making the effort to reach out to me. So what we learn about our salvation is that Jesus Christ calls us. He makes the effort to reach out to us. And then he says sanctified. Sanctification is simply the process of becoming holy. It's what the Holy Spirit does in us. He begins to work in us. He begins to change us. We become new beings as we come close to him. And, and Jude goes out of his way to say, you're not sanctified by your actions, by what you're doing. What is sanctifying you is the work of God in you. And then lastly, preserved by Jesus Christ. I love this. We need to hear this. There may be somebody in here that needs to hear this today and nothing else I'm about to say. What you do as an action does not save you, keep you saved, or cost your salvation. We are preserved by Jesus Christ. He came and he offered us salvation. And we're not keeping ourselves saved by being really good and going to church. Jesus Christ continues to work in us and continues to keep us saved by his grace. So what you see in Jude is he introduces himself. He, he tells us who he is. And then he says this of believers, that, that everything about being saved has to do with the work of God. That's our take-home truth number two. Our salvation is a work of God in us, not a work for God by us. Our salvation is a work of God in us, not a work for God by us. 
Now, normally, if we were going to start a book, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on the introduction. I would have been like, this is written by Jude. Here's who Jude was. Let's move on. But those two key points, just in how Jude introduces the letter, is going to be a key to a lot of the rest of the things that he says. So two main points to remember, number one and number two, is Jesus is the master, and we serve him because he is God. And number two, your salvation has very little to do with you, but what God is doing in you. Those are two key points we need to remember. Now, as he continues, he, he's going to give us some instruction that's going to reflect back to those key points. Please read with me verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that open. We'll be back to that here in a second. Uh, what you see here is something remarkable in the way that Jude talks about this. Jude sits down and he says, at the beginning of his letter, I was planning to write to you on the topic of common salvation. Not that salvation is common in that sense, but that we have salvation in common. That we are connected by our uh, joint faith in Jesus Christ and our joint salvation in Him. He said, that's what I wanted to write to you about. But you see something interesting here is he completely switches gears. He says, but I found it necessary to write something else to you. What you see in Jude is him communicating exactly what we teach about Scripture. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, we, we say this, the Bible says this, I don't have to say it, I just repeat this, that Scripture is breathed by God, that it was written by men under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And what you see Jude saying is, I wanted to write to you this, but God is moving in me and there's something else I have to write down. God has a message that he is giving us through Jude. And, and so he moves away from the talking and the connection of just our common salvation and what we have in common as brothers and sisters in Christ to a new topic, which is a call to action. He says, I'm going to write to you that you contend for the faith. Contending for the faith is not just like a, hey, take this home and meditate on it on your smiling or on your uh, um, alone time with God. Contending for the faith is a call to action for us to do something, something that we are going to have to prepare ourselves to do because there is a coming danger. It's very reminiscent to me of, of Paul Revere and his famous ride. We just had 4th of July. We should have all celebrated and studied our history lessons. That's what you're supposed to do on the 4th of July. You guys know the story of Paul Revere. He, he was tasked with when the British began to move against the arms at Concord and Lexington, what he was supposed to do is get on his horse and he was supposed to ride through the countryside shouting what? The British are coming. Wrong Sorry, I'm a history teacher. Let me give you a history lesson for a second ago. Paul Revere was British. He would never shout, the British are coming. He probably shouted, the army is coming. The point being, he went through the countryside and he gave a call to action. The British are coming, get ready. He's not telling you that these people are coming so that you can go back to bed. He's saying, get your pants on and get ready to fight because they're coming. It is a call to action. And what Jude is giving to Christians here is a call to action. There is a danger coming. Be prepared to contend for the faith. Be prepared prepared to fight for what is right. So, the danger here, what, what, is the pro, what is the danger, what is the problem, what is the thing that we're going to have to protect? James, or I'm sorry, Jude calls this simply the faith. And generally when we say faith in church, what do we think of? We think of our personal belief in Jesus Christ. 
Our personal understanding of who he is, putting our faith in him and meaning that we choose to follow him. But anytime you see the word in the Bible, faith, and the word the faith in front of it, he's not talking personally. He's talking about the essential essence of our belief. Take home truth number three is the faith is the essential truths of salvation, Jesus, and his teachings. So when Jude says be prepared to contend for the faith, what he's saying is be prepared to contend for the essential truths of our salvation, of who Jesus is and what his teachings are. And if you're wondering what those essential truths are, those, those things that we're to contend for, that we need to be prepared to fight for, go back to points one and two. Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord. He is our master. We serve him and we are saved because of the work that he has done on the cross and that he is doing in us continually. Those are the essentials of the faith. In short, the faith is Jesus. These are the non-negotiable truths of our faith. So if there's ever a gathering of people and they call themselves Christians or they call themselves a church, but they leave out the gospel that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that he is the head of our church, that salvation is found through him alone, what you have is not a church, but a social club of people gathering, even if they sing songs, even if they have a Bible, even if they sit in pews. Now let me be clear, every particular instance of belief is not the essential truths. People can be mistaken and still not be um, the, the snakes in the grass that we were talking about. But when people start purposely leaving out who God is, what makes God God, who we are in relation to God, then we have walked away from the faith. And what Jude tells us, he says, you're going to contend for this. Now we're Southerners. And one thing I know about Southerners is we like to fight. We love a good fight. Videos of it all over the internet. Man, that guy should have shut his mouth. He got knocked out. So when we hear contend for the faith, we're like, all right, let's fight for the faith. You know, we're, we're, we're thinking about like getting our swords and our armor on and going off and conquering something. That's not what this is talking about. As a fact, as you look at Jude, he's going to explain what contending for the faith is. And he never once says to confront anybody, to attack anybody, to fight anybody in any way. To contend in the biblical sense, what he's speaking of here, to contend for the faith is to assert the correctness of something. To, to, to contend that something is right when others are saying something that is wrong. Uh, contention is a disagreement on people's views. And it means that we hold fast to these truths about who Jesus is and what his role is and what our role is. That means that if somebody comes into our church and they're like, hey, I like your church. Really nice people. Pews are comfortable. But man, you've got to get off this Jesus is the only way stuff. You've got to be more inclusive. I mean, there's Buddhists out there. Can't they go to heaven for being good people? And here's what we say in contending for the faith. Here's a non-negotiable truth is that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Uh, there we go. Somebody comes in here and they say, you know, I want to go to heaven. Could you, could you figure out, can you tell me what to say or what I have to do just so I don't have to go to hell because that sounds unpleasant? I want to go to heaven, but I have no interest in Jesus as my king. Don't want that. I just don't want to suffer the punishment of Jesus not being my king. What we reply with is that's a non-negotiable truth. That if you get heaven, you get Jesus as king as well. If somebody comes into a church and says, man, you guys need to get off of this sin topic. That's real negative. Nobody wants to hear about sin. Let's be positive and upbeat. Get on the right side of history. I hear that a lot. We have to say, no, that's a non-negotiable truth because I don't define what sin is. My God who I serve defines what it is. And I'm not allowed to change that. That's the essential truth of the scripture. 
If somebody comes in here and says, well, you know, salvation is really about being good enough for God. We say, no, that's non-negotiable. Salvation is about what Jesus Christ did for me because I couldn't be good enough for God. And nothing I can do will cause me to get salvation and nothing I can do will cause me to lose my salvation. So what he's saying is be prepared to assert the correctness of the essential truths of Jesus Christ in case somebody comes in that wants to teach something different. And that's exactly what he says in verse 4. Why do we have to contend for that? He says there are uh, certain men that have slipped in among us. This is why I use that analogy to begin with of snakes among us. I want to be clear. I'm not pointing at anybody here at Ramsey Heights and saying, we got some snakes in the church we need to rat out. I'm not, I'm not saying that. And I'm also very careful with that analogy because I feel like calling somebody a snake in a Christian setting can honestly be unchristlike and sinful. But this example fits exactly what Jude is talking about. Jude aims at a particular group, a group of certain men that he believes are coming in or that he knows are coming in and causing people to walk away from the faith that are preaching and teaching things that are not um, in context, that are not right with the essentials of our faith. So here's what Jude tells us, take home truth number four, is that ungodly men will try to corrupt the faith. Ungodly men will try to corrupt the faith. These are the snakes that are among us. Now, he's going to go ahead and define what these men will look like and who they are in verse 4. And first, he says that these men are ungodly. Uh, last week, we talked about godliness. Godliness is simply when the character of God is recreated in me. Not that I become God, not that I become as good of God. It's simply that God's heart, God's essence, God's character is recreated in me, and I start to become like him. The Bible calls those the fruit of the Spirit, parts of God's character that are recreated in his believers, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. And what Jude is saying is that one of the ways that you can identify these false teachers, these snakes among us, is they will have a complete lack of his character. Now, let me be clear, clear. Just because somebody makes a mistake, somebody loses their temper, they say something they shouldn't have said, they do something wrong, does not mean that they are, are turning away from God. If, if that's true, none of us would be close to God because we all make mistakes. But what he's saying is if you take this person's overall life who is claiming Christ and then you measure it against God's character and you see none of God's character in their life, this is a person you should run away from, that you should contend against what they are teaching. Uh, an example of this that I remember very vividly in 2019, a pastor in Chicago was um, arrested and kicked out of his church because it came to light that he was trying to hire a hitman to take care of people who were against him. You can't be hiring hitmen and be a preacher. I would think I would know that. And uh, um, this, this story came out because he was so jaded in what he was doing and so sure that he was right. The way he tried to hire a hitman is he went to one of his deacons and asked for help hiring a hitman. And when the deacon realized he's not joking and he's not blowing off steam, he turned him into the authorities and the other leadership of the church and said, this man cannot lead us. He is ungodly. There is something wrong. As I researched that story this week, I saw that just, just a few weeks ago, he was arrested for assaulting a woman in a parking lot over a parking space. Now you're thinking, well, what kind of small podunk church has a pastor like that? This man was pastor over a church of 13,000 people. And he had a very prominent radio program. He was a nationally known pastor who was removed from leadership because he led in an ungodly way and lived in an ungodly way. Uh, secondly, secondly, uh, Jude tells us that these snakes among us, these false teachers, will turn grace into lewdness. Grace into lewdness. 
how grace is one of the greatest things that we have as Christians. What grace means, it means that God's mercy will never run out on your sin. Never will you do too much sin that God cannot forgive it. He, he loves us unconditionally. And we as Christians, we live in that grace knowing that, yes, I messed up today for the one millionth time in that same sin, but my God is faithful to forgive me when I confess my sins to him. But that's a dangerous thing to put in the hands of someone who doesn't have the essentials of the faith down. Because what happens is, is these men begin to preach that, that uh, we can do as we want to. Instead of grace being a way of us escaping sin, grace becomes an excuse for sin to run rampant. One of the essential truths of our faith is that sin is a serious thing. Our sin is so serious. The only way we could escape it is God himself had to become a human being, come here and die for me. That's how serious sin is. But these false teachers will begin to take sin and they won't view it with a seriousness. These false teachers will begin to say, you can do what you want to. The grace of God covers that. Live as you want, mess up as much as you want. Don't worry about it. They take grace and they make it as, a, make it as an excuse to sin, not a covering for our sin. I watched a video this week of a pastor or someone who called himself a pastor teaching that Jesus was transgender. This is on the internet. And he took some verse and he misconstrued it in a bunch of different ways. And he said, not only is it okay to, to live in that sin, he said, it's actually God glorifying because you're like Christ in that. These kind of teachers are in our society. They may be in the church down the road. I don't know. I've got a few that I'm, I'm aware of on a national stage. But what Jude is saying is be aware that these people exist. And what they're doing is they're taking the word of God and they're taking the essence of what God has taught us in our faith and they're destroying it. And third, you see the, the key to why somebody would be a false teacher is they deny Jesus. Uh, there's two senses of that that you could look at that, what deny Jesus might mean. It may mean that they deny the deity of Christ. Now, why you would call yourself a Christian and not believe that Jesus is God, I don't know. But there are some teachers out there who will teach that. There are some teachers out there who will tell you that Jesus was only God when he had the Holy Spirit. You can't kill God, so he wasn't really God. There is no such thing as the Trinity, and they have very convincing arguments about that. They deny the essence of who Jesus Christ is. And because of that, going back to point one, that they're not marked as a follower because they deny him as king because they don't see him as a king and God. They see him as a man. They only mimic followers of Christ to get power and prestige. So number five, that the main point of the whole book, your take-home truth number five, is be ready to contend for the faith with those who corrupt it. That means that your responsibility, my responsibility as this church is to take care of the spiritual need of this church to the best of my ability. But you as followers of Christ, every follower of Christ has the responsibility to look at the Bible, to know the essential truths of our faith, and be willing to assert the correctness of those truths when faced with false teaching. It means one day you may walk into a, a Sunday school class and somebody may teach something that is not the essence of our faith. It means that you may have a discussion with, a, with another Christian one day and you have to be able to know that what they are saying is not correct just because they, they make a great argument. You may visit a church and have to know this is not a church in which I belong because they do not hold to the faith. 
Now, what Jude is going to do for the rest of his book is he's going to give us a blueprint of how to contend for the faith. What does it, what does it mean for us to contend for the faith against these teachings? How do we watch for these false teachers? That's our next take-home truth. How do we contend for the faith? It's going to pull up all three points. Uh, first thing we have to do that Jude is going to cover is we have to believe in God's judgment. That's going to be verses 5 through 7. We're going to continue talking about that today. Number two is we have to identify false teachers. Take home truth number six, please. We have to identify false teachers. That's verses 8 through 18. We'll talk about that next week, how to identify false teachers. And number three is we have to meditate on the truth, verses 19 through 27. We'll talk about that in two weeks. So continue reading with me here, verses 5 through 7, as, as Jude tells us the first way we contend for the faith is to believe in God's judgment. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, and uh, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh and are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." So Jude goes on after saying, hey, there are people that are going to come in that you're going to have to contend for the faith with. You're going to have to look at them and know they're a false teacher. And then he immediately goes on and says, let me, let me remind you about some stories of the Bible. Let, let me remind you how God has punished people. Now, I want you to remind you, contending does not mean fighting or arguing people. See, the danger is not that somebody is teaching false stuff. The danger is that some of us may start to believe it. Just like the danger of a snake is not that it exists. There are plenty of snakes out there. That's fine. The danger of a snake is when it gets too close to you and it grabs you. So what Jude is going to give us here is a way of keeping this teaching, this doctrine out of us, out of our churches, and out of our beliefs. He's given us a way to know what the truth is, to have, ourself, have it said in our hearts, and to warn others. I can tell you right now, if I'm outside and I see a snake, you will know about it. Number one, because I will scream like a little girl. Number two, every time anybody goes within 50 yards of the place I saw that snake, I will tell you, be careful, I saw a snake over there. There's a snake, there's danger, don't go over there. As a matter of fact, that road where I almost stepped on that rattlesnake nearly 20 years ago, actually over 20 years ago, I still to this day call that rattlesnake road. And if you come to our house and you go walking down that path, you know what I'm going to tell you? Be careful, I've seen two rattlesnakes on that road in the past 20 years. What the Bible is telling us here is be ready to assert the essential truth, both in our hearts and to others who may need to hear it. See, we as a church, we're collectively put together, which means that we have responsibility to each other. We're to pull each other out of sin. We're to hold each other accountable. We're to warn each other of dangers, which means we have to be prepared to know the truth confidently in our heart to warn others of danger. So as he goes through this, he, he's going to tell us to keep out of danger. One of the ways that he keeps us out of this danger of going into this is he says, you assess what the cost of these doctrines and these teachings are, and you see that there is judgment, condemnation, and danger from them. I was a high school teacher for 10 years. In that decade of teaching high school, I had four students die in car wrecks. 
And I bring that fact up to my students again and again and again before prom and over a weekend and when I hear them talk about racing. And I tell them I lost people that I knew and loved because they drove dangerously. Just understand, if you go out and you participate in these things, that is the danger. And I try to warn people away from, from the way that they as teenagers might drive by giving them an assessment of what might happen. What Jude is doing here is he's saying you need to understand the danger of what you're playing with, what these false teachers are going into and leading themselves into. Sure, they're going to be talented. They're going to preach messages about feeling good. They're going to sound really good. But what they're doing is paving a path to condemnation. You must resist them because opposing God in this way is serious. And he's going to give some examples of what happens to those opposed God. Now this is another example of how scripture works. Scripture works on the understanding that we understand scripture. That we are students of the scripture. And so what he's going to do is he's going to pull three stories from the Old Testament that most people at this time would have been familiar with. And he's going to give an example of things that are happening when people oppose God in the same way. What happens to them. So the first one he talks about, you can find this, this story in Exodus and Numbers is the Israelites after leaving Egypt. You guys probably, you know, have seen the Charlton Heston movie or you studied it in Sunday school, right? The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They can't leave. And God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses goes and stands in front of Pharaoh. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And there's all of these, these uh, plagues that come down on them. And eventually Pharaoh lets them go. And then he guides them through all of these troubles in the desert out here in the middle of nowhere. And he's leading them to a place. He says, I'm taking you to a place called the promised land. I have promised to give it to you. It is mine. I will give it to you. There are people living there. You Israelites, you go take it. And when they come to the promised land, this, this place that is modern day Israel, they send spies into the land. All the spies come back and go, we're not going in there. There's giants and people to fight. We don't want to fight anybody. We can't do this. And all of the people of Israel at this time go, we don't want what God is trying to give us. And they reject the goodness of God. They don't believe him. And for that, the Israelites spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. And that entire generation, save just a few people, pass away. Jude has given us this story to remind us that God takes it very seriously when we don't trust him. Not only did those people die, in Psalm 95, listen to this. This is Psalm 95. It speaks of those people. It says, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. See, what the Bible teaches us is these people who went away from God, they, they were not God's people. They went their own way in their own hearts. They didn't know the ways of God. And God says, they shall not enter my rest. They are condemned. The second example he uses is uh, um, angels who rebelled against God. This is from one of two places. This is either Isaiah 14, the story many of us are familiar with, where one third of the angels followed Satan in a rebellion and God cast them out of heaven. Those angels now called demons. Or it may be from Genesis 6, an obscure verse that says the sons of God came down and intermingled with the daughters of men. Some people believe that that is angels giving into sexual sin. Either way, the point stands that these angels who were made to serve God, their purpose was to serve God. They resisted God and they turned their back on him. And here's what the scripture says about them. He says, God holds them in chains awaiting the day of their judgment. 
Thirdly, he, he talks, he references Sodom and Gomorrah, which we talked about last week. Two cities that were perverse in every stance. They are synonymous with depravity and with God's um, wrath and being condemned. These cities destroyed by fire. He references these three things. He says, listen, when people who claim to be God's people don't act like God's people, when they go away from him, God's wrath is swift and it is destructive. The point of what Jude is trying to get out is this is a serious issue. He uses the three most egregious sins in the Old Testament to describe what it's like for these false teachers. There's eternal implications to these false teachings to people who walk away from the essentials of the faith. Jude is saying it's very dangerous. Contend with it and don't be sucked in. Your last take-home truth, number seven, is corrupting the faith is very serious to God and will be punished. See, this is an essential truth that we believe, that we serve a God of love. The Bible says God is love, but we also serve a God of condemnation and judgment. And God will not let sin go unpunished, and God will not let his church be corrupted by people without punishment. And the only way that we escape any condemnation, the only way that we are not set for the, for the same fate as those people mentioned in the scripture is because my Savior, Jesus Christ, became a man and came here and died for us. Rick, if you want to start coming up here. See, the essential truth of our faith is this, that we are nothing apart from Jesus Christ, that we can have all of the good works that we want, that we can do whatever we want to, but without Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are condemned. This morning, I think this text has two implications for everybody in here. You may be sitting in here this morning, and you may need to be saved. I want you to know that you can walk into the faith, and there is only one rope that you have to walk under, and that is that Jesus Christ is God. And if you put your faith in Him, He saves you. And for the rest of us who have already done that, we are now the guardians of the truth of how you become saved and who God is and what that looks like in our relationship with Him. And there may come a time when we have to walk away from a teacher or individuals who corrupt the gospel of Christ because it is very dangerous. Let's stand and worship this morning.